this is John Deek, and we are celebrating 25 years of the Very Young Composers, a program of the New York Philharmonic. And the music we're hearing is by a very young composer from Israel, Nama Rolnik, who composed and orchestrated her piece, Keep Walking, when she was 10 years old. This is Scene 5, Detours and Discoveries. Could the world be so exciting and so scary at the same time? I couldn't wait to leave home and get out into it, and yet I had good reason to be frightened. Because although I had a few lucky breaks here and there, and many good people as guides and mentors, I was under no illusion that my degree of musical quote-unquote talent was anything more than ordinary, and that unless I agreed to... <laughs> curb my enthusiasm. My ambitious road ahead would be quite rocky and perhaps even impassable. I put those scare quotes around that word talent purposely because the word actually became an obstacle to my way of thinking about music and art in general. That is, if only an elite number of people who had great talent would be allowed to think of themselves as artists, then a sort of oligarchy could follow, and this would not only sideline the arts, but fail to enrich the lives of so many people. That said, I still had the practical world as it existed to deal with. As I say, I was itching to leave home and become independent. I needed to earn a living, to earn a trade, as it were, and yet it had to be something I loved and something to which I was passionately dedicated. <laughs> to say that I had a plan, though, would be highly inaccurate. I was not good at conscious decisions. Most of my path would be followed impulsively, even subconsciously, for good or ill. I was already attracted to the surrealist artists, who made an explicit code of their work to create subconsciously. <laughs> but more about that later. So, for one reason or another, I was attracted to Oberlin College, which seemed to offer a reasonably intense musical course of study, as well as a reputation for free thought and good academic courses. It was also far away from Oak Park and the stress of living at home. My general application was no shining model, and at my audition I thought I'd played badly. I had to admit, furthermore, <laughs> that my SAT scores were not all that high, partly due to the fact that I was never good at completing homework as assigned, never prepared for that test, and at the exam I misunderstood a key instruction and was too shy to inform the SAT monitor teacher of that fact. Eh, excuses, excuses again. <laughs> and here I realize I may be talking myself down too much, because in the end, despite all this, I was accepted into Oberlin College and Conservatory with a scholarship. Go figure. At Oberlin, I did thrive academically and musically, especially for a while, and enjoyed breathing in the rambling socio-political and thoughtful ferment of the atmosphere there, much of which took place outside the classroom. So I was very pleased with the courses. There was one major exception to all this, unfortunately. 
a sort of insular and rigid thinking, in particular with the creative part of music. I wanted to study both my instrument and composing, of course, but right away I could see that composing was blocked to me because at that time composers and professors were under the thrall of what was called the post-Webern school, which, without explaining, was a technique which, almost by its nature, restricted enjoyment to a few conoscenti <laughs> or experts. I had no taste for that as a discipline, even though I'd already written several works in that style and performed them. But once again, my initially good grades began to fall and depression and ill health set in at the end of the first year. But on the plus side, I made some lifelong friendships there, including my future spouse, Carol Cage. I loved playing in the Oberlin Orchestra, no surprise. But one day, I accidentally fell and broke one of the school bases. A base yet? Oh my goodness, I was so ashamed and embarrassed. And also, there was no such thing as insurance then for that kind of thing. So I had to pay for the repair of that base out of my own pocket. Huh, what pocket? So in order to pay for it, I worked as a librarian and a stagehand for the orchestra. And though it was a hard job and the kind of job where people were always yelling at you, that was not completely a useless experience because it gave me a lasting respect for that side of the profession. I also became an usher at the concerts in Finney Chapel, which was one of the great acoustical halls of the world. We heard the Cleveland Orchestra, the Philadelphia, the Leningrad Philharmonic, the Berlin Philharmonic with von Karajan, Ormandy, well, so many more conductors. And in the spring, amazing to say, none other than Igor Stravinsky came to conduct us, along with a week's festival of his music, he was just turning 80. To play his music directly under his baton was, of course, an experience to treasure for a lifetime. He spoke little, mostly French to us, and I remember his favorite words seemed to be sec or dry, meaning that he wanted every note short and clearly articulated. I was dazzled. My love of his music remains to this day. In the summer of 1963, after my second year at Oberlin, I chanced to land on a scantily paid employment with the Blue Jeans Symphony. No, it was not scantily clad, wise guy. It was scantily paid. It was in Estes Park, Colorado, and Blue Jeans, by the way, were not worn then, except, remember, by cowboys and construction workers. So I'd been there the year before and had already fallen in love with the place. Estes Park, Rocky Mountain National Park. The mountains, irresistible. I could already sense the fresh air. So five of us from Oberlin with all our instruments crowded into a behemoth of a Pontiac sedan without seatbelts and drove out. For the privilege of playing in the orchestra, we were given recommendations for various working-class jobs in the town. I tried my hand as a waiter in a diner, a night watchman at a horse corral, and a maid at a motel. I failed utterly as a waiter, could not keep track of the orders. I enjoyed the night watchman stint, I suppose, and really got into the hard work at the tiny town motel, making beds, cleaning refrigerators and bathrooms, sweeping and vacuuming. 
The other maids were proud of their work, and we would even compete to see who could clean the most units. <laughs> I mention all this because, again, it had a bearing on, on the future course of my life and of the VYC, because this kind of thing gave me a respect for working people, especially women earning about 60 cents an hour. And then, oh, on my days off, I would climb, climb, climb. Every peak and mountain meadow I could walk on or hitch a ride to, I was hitching a ride to heaven. Beyond this, it was a momentous summer for me and yet another major life change. I was coming of age, barely 20 years old, and had a rather disastrous and fleeting past at a romantic relationship with a young woman in the orchestra. More importantly, perhaps standing next to me in the bass section was a guy named Richard Johnson, later Richard Beeson, who was a Juilliard student of Stuart Sankey, who was a highly regarded and controversial teacher. I was already chafing at my teachers and the relatively quiet atmosphere at Oberlin. I wanted to be in the thick of the musical world. And when Richard told me that Gary Carr, no less, remember Gary Carr, he was studying with this Mr. Sankey. I gasped, stared off into space for just a moment, shook myself awake, and decided I must see this Mr. Sankey. I asked if I might hitch a ride with Richard when he drove down to visit Mr. Sankey at the Aspen Music Festival, which was some 200 miles over narrow mountain roads, not all paved. Remember, this was long before I-70. <laughs> Cramming into the car with us at the last minute was my young lady friend. <laughs> I later heard from others that she hoped I might make her pregnant, but I felt sad for her. But no dice, my lady, you got the wrong idea. In Aspen, I did meet Stuart Sankey, played just a bit for him, and again, I had the chutzpah to ask him if I could transfer immediately to Juilliard and study with him, by now, that was less than a month away. He shrugged and said, Sure, come to New York, but you'll have to audition next month. Who knows? New York. New York! Oh, my God. Here I was, passport-ready, and accepted to board the ship and sail with my junior Oberlin class to study in Salzburg. Salzburg, the home of Mozart, the Alps, mountains, climbing... Are you crazy? They may not even let you into Juilliard and as for a scholarship, forget about it. But I'd made up my mind. Nothing was going to stop me. My parents were shocked and warned me severely. My Oberlin friends were disappointed, yet intrigued. I was on my way to the Big Apple. 